It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The Slate Political Gab Fest is sponsored by stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up now for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. And by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com political and using the promo code political. And by Blue Apron, the new service that delivers all the farm-fresh ingredients you need to make incredible meals at home. Discover a better way to cook. Visit blueapron.com gabfest to get your first two meals free. That's blueapron.com gabfest. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for June 26th, 2015, the jiggery pokery edition. I am David Fotz of Atlas Obscura here in our Washington studio. Our rapidly heating up Washington studio is John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Hello, John Dickerson. Hello, David. By the time we're done with this Gap Fest, you and I are both just going to be in puddles. Of... It's going to be terrible. Yeah. It is really going to be terrible. It's already, it's already started. And then in her home in New Haven, her own private recording studio where she's producing pet <laughs> sounds is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Yes, magazine. that is me. I hope no one can hear the lawnmower that's running outside, not at my house. Uh, can't hear it. No. Good. On this week's Gabfest, King versus Burwell, of course, Emily is all ready. She's fired up and ready to go like a presidential candidate to tell us all about the big Obamacare decision. Then the Confederate flag still flies, I think, in front of the state capitol in, in Columbia, South Carolina, but probably not for much longer. We will talk about the sudden retreat from Confederate symbolism. And then the Pope's encyclical about climate change, will it in fact, change anything. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and in Slate Plus, a conversation about presidents, unless we can come up with a better topic between now and Slate Plus. But I, I, I feel like John and I are going to have a really fun Slate Plus conversation. Uh, and I'll enjoy listening. Uh, yeah. yeah, I feel like you're setting the bar pretty high. I don't know. I just, I, it's, it was a topic... It was a topic that I, when I thought of it, I thought, John, John will really enjoy this. Oh, That's good. why what I'm going to do it. it. Well, shouldn't you tell people No, it it's going to oh, be okay. secret, but it's, it's a secret. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash Gabfest Plus. Speaking of which, so our live show, July 29th, in Washington, D.C. at 6th and I, is sold out. However, there is a pre-show cocktail hour in D.C. before the show on July 29th, and members of Slate Plus can buy their tickets now. Members of Slate Plus are going to receive an email with instructions on how to purchase, and uh, we'll have the necessary links and discount codes in their dashboard. So they'll be able to buy their tickets on Friday, and starting at Friday at 8 p.m., those tickets will be available to 
non-members of Slate Plus if there are any tickets left. So this is a real big advantage for Slate Plus members. If you want to have a cocktails with us, you probably need to be a Slate Plus member because there are not that many tickets. And I bet the Slate Plus folks grab them. The location of the sh- the cocktail party will be disclosed once all tickets have been sold, apparently. You can go to slate.com slash cocktails DC. Slate.com slash cocktails DC. This is the day that Emily Bazelon was born for. King versus Burwell came down Thursday morning, this morning. Six to three, the Supreme Court with liberal justices, John Roberts and Anthony Kennedy joining them, holding up as constitutional, as legal, the subsidies. Legal. In, legal, excuse me. Because legal in the Affordable no Care Act. No constitution this time. No constitutional involved. issues. So Justice Scalia, who wrote the dissent, is incensed and very funny because he's incensed. But Emily, tell us. Start us off by telling us what they decided, what were the legal issues at hand, and why and how they they came out for the president's team. There is a single, relatively simple legal issue at hand. It involves four words in the Affordable Care Act established by the state, which would seem to mean, if you just look at the line in which they are written, that the subsidies that make health insurance affordable for people who buy them through the health care exchanges that Obamacare set up, established by the state would suggest those subsidies are only available to people who use the subsidies through healthcare exchanges, quote, established by the state. Most states have exchanges established by the federal government because a lot of states didn't want to set up their own exchanges, either because they were being anti-Obamacare or because they thought their markets were too small and setting up their own exchanges seemed like a big pain in the neck. So this was really a fight over these four words in the statute and what they mean, and more broadly and more interestingly, how judges should read laws. And so the underlying dispute that Scalia and Roberts have, and which you're absolutely right, Scalia is hilarious and vehement about, is whether when you see four words like this that would appear to have a clear meaning, it is fair game to look at the context of the law as a whole. Here we're talking about a 900-page law. And also whether it's fair to take into account consequences and to think about the clear underlying purpose of a statute and the intentions Congress had when it passed that law. Are those moves that judges should make? Is that part of their job? Scalia says, absolutely not. And Robert says, yes, turning himself into a pragmatist. Um, which I was delighted to see. But what about the other issue, which is if you have four words in a 900-page, which is not about what the ruling would do or not do to the current situation, but what was the? did they have a debate about four words versus a 900-page bill? Yeah. I mean, most of the opinions are about this idea of, from Scalia's point of view, it says established by the state. That's like clear as plain day. He has many wonderful turns of phrase about in his view, how absurd it is to read the law in any other way. And then, you know, the underlying philosophical point for him is that if this was indeed a drafting error, as Roberts essentially says, that is Congress's problem. Congress gets to fix that. It's not on judges to step in. What Roberts says is that if you look at the many ways in which the law is structured to depend on subsidies for everybody who qualifies for them based on their income level throughout the country, it's essentially nonsensical, absurd, to read the law narrowly so that established by the state denies subsidies to people in, you know, the 30-odd states who are getting their subsidies through federally run exchanges. And they both have proof they offer based on other provisions in the law that support their readings of the law. Emily, one of the issues, one of the discussions in 
advance of this decision was the theory that, okay, if there's ambiguity about what the statute means, then tie goes to the executive's interpretation. And that means that if Obama and the I- Obama's IRS interpret it this way, then that's that that stands. And, and so we don't need to get to the question of what the law actually means because the executive interprets it. As I understand it, the Supreme Court did not take that position. They, the Supreme Court basically said the law means what Obama said it means, and the next president can't interpret it differently, correct? That's right. And this was a more surprising kind of move on the majority's part. You know, normally when courts interpret laws, they do this thing called Chevron deference, which I remember we got to talk about a lot the last time we discussed this case. And we should note that's different than uh, Exxon or Shell deference. (laughs) Yes, it's from a case that was either brought by or Chevron was the defendant in. And the idea is that you have a federal law Congress turns over the power to issue regulations pursuant to that law to a federal agency. And then unless the agency's reading of the law is essentially like completely bonkers or mostly bonkers, courts should defer to it. But Roberts didn't take that path. He said that, yeah, that's the normal rule, but that in this case, we're talking about billions of dollars going to millions of people. And Congress, in his view, could not have attended to delegate all of that power to the IRS, at least not without explicitly saying so. So once he's finished saying that, he says it's up to the court to decide how to read this law. And then he has to deal with the problem that these four words appear to have a plain meaning, but he reads them as ambiguous in the context of the law as a whole. And then that starts him down his analytical path. And the reason they can be ambiguous in terms of the law as a whole is that if that was the true intent to penalize states, then they would have made a bigger deal about it than simply four words in passing. Exactly. The notion, he says, that Congress would have hidden in a, you know, subclause of a subclause of the tax code, this hugely important news about how Obamacare works, just seems to him to be um, nonsensical. And I think it is. What I love about this debate between Roberts and Scalia is they're both accusing each other of absurd readings. And underneath it is this really important question about how judges should read laws and what their job is um, vis-a-vis Congress. Is this the decision that Justice Ginsburg or Justice Breyer would have written, more or less? I mean, I think it pretty much is. And this surprises me because... Flashback to 2012, the last time we had an Obamacare challenge before the Supreme Court, it was a constitutional challenge. Roberts sided with the liberals five to four. He wrote this opinion, which benefited conservatives in multiple ways. First of all, he turned um, the individual mandate into essentially a tax um, as opposed to a subsidy. That language is a little bit haunting for the president and his supporters. And second of all, he got some of the liberals on board for allowing the states to decide to refuse the Medicaid expansion that Obamacare provides for. That's been hugely influential. We still have 22 states that have not expanded Medicaid. And so you could argue there was like this poison pill in the Roberts approach the last time around. This time, I don't see it. I mean, like you said, because he didn't defer to the IRS, the next president cannot wave a magic wand and change the agency interpretation of these subsidies. Not that that was really likely anyway, because the truth is most Republican lawmakers, I think, will breathe a sigh of relief that this fight is over and they don't have to deal with the prospect of the subsidies getting yanked away from millions of people and how to fix that. So, John, yeah, that gets to the obvious political question, which is that that this is one of those issues where everyone seems happy about it. Yeah. The Republicans don't want to seem happy, but they actually are happy. Is that right? I think that's exactly right, which is um, 
I, I don't quite have the bottom rungs on the ladder to get all the way up to 30,000 feet on that part of this question. But it is because I was trying to say, like, this is the this is what passes for a good outcome in Washington now where. So the president's happy because his signature piece of legislation seems he said, I mean, of course, he's going to say this, but he said, you know, it's now woven into the fabric of American life. And I think that's true. It survived. Well, the votes to get it in the 2010 election, 2012 election, the 2014 election, two Supreme Court challenges, it's there to stay. And there's maybe one last gasp. You could attach it to reconciliation, but I think that's highly unlikely. So the president gets what he wants. His signature piece of legislation exists. And we should talk more about the kind of legacy feelings of Obama on this. But then the Republicans don't have to come up with an alternative in fast, in short order. I mean, what was difficult about this is that you would have... I mean, the court, I guess, could have ruled, Emily, help me here, but could have ruled in a way that, like, people wouldn't have been knocked off of their or lost their subsidies instantaneously. I mean, there could have been a ramp yes, up period. Yes, they could have issued a stay and delayed the actual impact of such a ruling. But coming up with fast legislation that, oh, by the way, would have increased the deficit by the most of the likely scorings at this period of time would have been hell, just both because it's hard to get anything from Congress and also because there's a lot of people in the Senate running for president. So the Republicans didn't really want to mess with having to create a new piece of legislation. And also now they can still rail against it and fundraise off it. And almost all the presidential candidates, many of the presidential candidates had already sent out fundraising letters within like an hour of the ruling, using this as a way to gin up donations. So everybody gets what they want. It's a win for everybody, which is the opposite of what good legislation is supposed to be. Everybody's a little bit disappointed. Here, I think everybody's like, happy. Do you think this this truly marks the end of the attempts to get rid of Obamacare? Or if we have a Republican president oh. with a Republican Congress, will they actually try to get rid of it? I think um, so. A Republican president would have two and a Republican Congress would have two avenues. One, a Republican president could do a version of what President Obama has done in some cases, which is just find those provisions of the law that they can tell the executive not to enforce and then just not enforce them. The problem is then you'd have like a half working system and you'd have lots of people, you know, you would have chaos result in that. And so you'd want to amp, you'd want to fix the chaos from the new piece of legislation. A new piece of legislation on healthcare is a big undertaking. And does a new president want to immediately entomb his new presidency in uh, the same old fight about healthcare? There's not a great upside. So I think, there will be lots of people claiming they're going to do lots of things. Um, but by the time in 2017, a new president takes office, the numbers of people who will be newly covered and the numbers of uninsured that have gone down would make it really tough for me to see how a Republican president would expend a bunch of capital. What What is it that this is totally off topic, but as you were talking about that, I, I got to thinking that I can't think of what the affirmative piece of governance that the Republican presidential field is pushing for? Because they're basically, they're defined in opposition, in opposition to Obamacare, in opposition to immigration reform. Immigration what, are, reform. what are the areas in which you think, like, I become president, I now oh. hear the things where I'm affirmatively going to do things? Yeah. So I think you, there are two, at least two areas. One would be fixing the tax code, reducing the rates. I was going to say that. I'm so proud. Sorry. That's fine. Uh, so there, and there will be in the Republican field, because they need some distinguishing mechanism to help choose between, you know, or distinguish themselves among the 87 candidates, there is going to be, I think, a bit of a foot race on 
tax policy, which I know both of you are uh, sorry, limbering what? up for. I was, <laughs> um, I was sleeping. Oh, we can't I was sleeping. Wait. Yeah. So, That's you know, it'll be step. like, is it to reduce it to three rates, one flat rate, you know, um, get rid of deductions. Nobody will, everybody will talk about getting rid of deductions, but p- few people do. will be actually specific about it. So they would reduce rates, simplify the tax code, repatriate a lot of the money that's overseas. Some of them want to repatriate it just for its own sake. Some want to repatriate it and balance it out with infrastructure spending. There are all kinds of different um, right, that's one. arguments. Okay. So that's taxes. Then regulations. I mean, so if you're a Republican, you want to shrink the, the meddling of government. And so they would want to um, remove regulations. A lot. There will be a lot of environmental regulations, energy, unleash the energy revolution in America, which seems to be going along pretty robustly already. But they would reduce regulation to get the shackles off of private business and, and everything from like licensing requirements to, to anything that would come under the broad category of regulations. Uh, would be another big issue for them. That's some pretty weak tea. That's the best they can come up with. Those are the two big ideas. Well, I mean, I mean, the tax the reform tax is, code is not is nice. weak, weak. No, no, tea. but they won't I mean, do it. If they, if you could do good tax reform, that would be great. But they're it seems hard to imagine they could do something. They're so captive to so many different special interests there. You need, but maybe they could get more for their special interests. I mean, you're well. That's there not are tax versions. reform, really. Well, it depends what you see as reform, right? Um, let's go back to the legal questions here, Emily. So the Supreme Court still has the gay marriage case. When do we expect that? Could come down as early as Friday. Tomorrow, yeah. And more likely Monday. And much better for GabFest scheduling if it's Monday. And then, then they're basically done? Well, no. There are some other big ones still to be decided. There's the constitutionality of a new lethal injection protocol in Oklahoma that's been associated oh, with that's botched over. executions. That's, that's, that's not much of a case. All right. I got two more for you. Can Arizona have independent commissions redrawing the congressional maps every year? Or is that impossible because it was a voter voter initiative rather than the legislature in Arizona that provided for those independent mm-hmm. commissions? Right. That's important. That's about yeah. the electoral process, yeah. right? Yeah. No, you're not into that? No, it's like minor minor constitutional issue regarding sort of some, some interpretation of, of Article 1 or Article 2. All right, go on. And then the last one, which is important, is whether the Obama administration's mercury regulations are going to stand because the Environmental Protection Agency implemented them by taking public health consequences into account, but not necessarily doing rigorous cost-benefit analysis up front. And that was a big problem at oral argument oh, for a lot of the court's conservatives. So you can lose. see that one going They're going to lose that. That's yeah. going to be bad and a big deal. Yes, that will be bad and a big deal for the Obama administration if that's what happens. And the Arizona redistricting case is really important, especially if you go along with my theory about John Roberts, which is that his priority are the cases that involved that involve America's election process and campaigns that if you think about Citizens United and some of the other decisions relating to that case, and then also this one person, one vote case they're hearing next year. These are cases that matter a great deal for essentially entrenching Republican power. And the Arizona case is a piece of that puzzle. So perhaps that's where Roberts is going to take a more conservative stand this term. Looking at what President Obama said in the Rose Garden, first of all, he had two speeches written um, for the based on the ruling, and Cody Keenan, who's the uh, president's speechwriter, had written both speeches, and he got the the one if it had been de- defeated is now in what he calls his concession speeches folder, and the president signed it and said, "Don't need this one, brother," um, which I thought was a an amusing little piece of color. But the president's speech, I thought, was um, 
Maybe we're all having legacy flashbacks because, well, that's what one does uh, at the end of a presidency when one is looking for a billboard paragraph in a story. But um, the president did two things in his remarks in the Rose Garden that struck me. One is when he talked about how at the end of it, he sort of reaffirmed the purpose of America in this legislation. He said uh, when he talked about what the legislation does and how it helps people, he says that's when that's when America soars, when we take care of each other. That's what we do. That's the whole point of public service. So here you've got a guy. This is his largest legislative achievement. And always in arguing for it and most explicitly and I think at best was when he was trying to pass the actual law and he argued before the Democrat, the Democratic conference in the House about why they should all vote for this. And it was a very emotional speech in which he said, you know, this is why we went into public service and you want to be true to yourself. But when he talks about the American story being about helping each other and gathering together and that that is what American exceptionalism about. This takes us all the way back to the very first speech I ever saw him give as a presidential candidate, which is in 2007 in South Carolina, where he will return at the end of uh, the week the healthcare decision came down to give uh, a eulogy in Charleston. And in his speeches, he used to talk about this form of American exceptionalism. So this whole this ruling for him takes him back to kind of the fundamental underpinnings of his entire presidency. And that is that through collective action, we help each other out, that we have an obligation to the rest of mankind. And finally, I would point one other thing that he said in the Rose Garden that was interesting is that always the Obama people have pointed to the Affordable Care Act as basically one of the biggest things he could do for the economy. The first, they would argue, is basically pulling the economy out of the ditch with the stimulus package and helping the rescue the car business and and other things. But what they have always argued is with stagnant wages and family incomes plateauing, when you talk to people, they say, I feel like I'm working harder but falling further behind. And when you ask them what that means to them, they will talk about their wages, but half the time they'll talk about health care. And when the president ran, he talked about health care as this looming thing that if you got sick, it would basically throw you right into bankruptcy. So if your wages are flat, it's not just that you might get fired or your wages may stay flat, but that you're one medical emergency away from the poorhouse, from never being able to send your kids to college because you won't have the money. And that anxiety, that middle-class fear, was something they've always pushed as a real achievement for Obama on the economic front. And that is what he talked about in the Rose Garden as well. You know, just because I think this may be the last time we ever have to talk about this subject or ever talk about the subject of Obamacare and sort of probably we won't have big healthcare discussions going forward. I just want to register my extreme dissatisfaction. Clearly, Obamacare is an improvement on what was, you know, more Americans don't have to worry about falling into bankruptcy. As somebody who's had to have various dealings with the health, private health insurance markets recently, they are an absolute abomination. The fact that we have to spend the time and energy dealing with the kinds of, of crap that we have to deal with, with with our private insurers is ridiculous. And anyone who thinks like this is a really good system, this is how it ought to be, is just kidding themselves. The amount of energy you waste on paperwork, on trying to see what's covered, on like finding the right kind of doctor, on all of that stuff is it's just nonsense. And I know like for the rich and for the, the fact that you have a certain amount of medical choice and great and you know private, there's there's great private healthcare in this country makes a difference. But basically, where we are giving our time and money for paperwork and bureaucracy and and wastefulness and like it's bad. It doesn't mean that we're all going to go in the poorhouse. It does mean that there's a there's a tax on all of us all the time for this shit. Anyway, 
Well, and that's the difference between creating a system from scratch and building on what we already had and also having a commitment to private health insurance as opposed to, you know, a government run system like many European countries have. So that's where we are. That's why we are where we are. And then I guess the other thing to say is Obamacare does have some provisions in it that are supposed to nudge healthcare providers toward cost savings, toward fewer unnecessary, you know, everythings. And so we'll see if maybe over time that will have some effect. But of course, you're right. From your mouth to God's ears. The GabFest is sponsored this week by Stamps.com. Making trip to the post office is becoming a thing of the past. You don't need to do it anymore thanks to Stamps.com. You already know that going to the post office is inconvenient, driving there, finding parking, waiting in line. But what you probably didn't know is that you're paying more for postage there than you have to. Stamps.com is a better way. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter and any package right from your computer and printer than just hand it to your mail carrier. With Stamps.com, you'll get special postage discounts you can't even get at the post office, so you'll never have to go to the post office again. Right now, use our promo code GABFEST for the special no-risk trial and $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. A week after the racist terrorist mass murder in Emanuel Church in Charleston, there is no discussion to speak of about changing the nation's gun laws. However, there is a lot of symbolic drama going on. Nikki Haley, the Republican governor of South Carolina, has called for the Confederate flag that flies in front of the statehouse there to come down. The retailers, a lot of businesses have, have pulled Confederate flag products from their shelves. There are moves to change the Mississippi state flag, which has Confederate elements in it, moves to remove or move statues of Confederate leaders from various governmental buildings. John, after a century of full-throated endorsement of Confederate symbols in lots of parts of this country, why has this action changed, suddenly changed how people think about Confederate symbols? The short answer is easy. There are nine dead African-Americans as a result of somebody who was a worshiper of and a fetishizer of the Confederate flag, specifically as a symbol of anti-black hatred. So he was not a reenactor who cared about the heritage of the Civil War or somebody who had a love of history who recognized the complexities of somebody who could have duty to their family and tradition and yet be fundamentally wrong because of their position on slavery. That wasn't it. He was taking pictures of himself with, you know, with, I guess, a pistol um, and the flag and standing out in front of the Confederate Museum. So, you know, politicians, there go my people. Now I must lead them. There was an outcry after these killings. And so the politicians ran to the head of the parade. And that's a good outcome. What I don't understand is all of the pain that was caused by this symbol. It was a symbol of racism before the shootings happened. And so there's a weird way in which a lot of the politicians have talked about it as if they're suddenly discovering this. And that seemed discordant. I I haven't read a good description of the disconnect between the fact that people were being heralded as great leaders for discovering something that had been around and a problem for a long time. Isn't this one of these issues that when you shine a spotlight on it, 
the assumed politics and the historical stance just becomes clearly indefensible. I mean, you know, yes, these symbols have been in place and have been accepted or tolerated for years and years, and yet it just makes absolutely no sense. And when you start thinking about the legacy that they really stand for and how much that is full of slavery and racism and death from the Civil War, it just becomes crazy to imagine that we continue to romanticize the South in the way that the Confederate flag and the support for the flag has has done. But here's what I don't I'm going to a larger point. But if you think about it, there it's not just the flag. There I was in Richmond this weekend for the first time. Huge statue towering over Monument Avenue of Jeff Davis. There's a Jefferson Davis statue in the US Capitol, I think. There's an Alexander Stevens statue in the US Capitol, the vice president of the Confederacy. There, you know, Nathan Bedford Forrest statues around the country. The Nathan Bedford Forrest, who's truly one of the worst people in American history. And didn't know, he statue. help start the Ku Klux Klan? Yeah, he started the Ku Klux Klan. There's a Jeff, Jeff Davis statue in the Kentucky Capitol, even though he had nothing to do with Kentucky, apparently. There's a Robert E. Lee statue, which I talked about. I don't know if I talked about in this podcast. I think I was guest hosting the gist. Huge Robert E. Lee statue towering over the Gettysburg battlefield. Robert E. Lee, a traitor. A traitor to the government, a, a person, you know, we've, you know, we've had this fight. We don't need to have it again. Is every one of these things going to suddenly disappear? Is every one of these things, every every monument to a Confederate going to go? Obviously not. But maybe we should be having that conversation. And yes, over time, a lot of those statues will be taken down, not because we want to erase our history, but we want to acknowledge that there is so much to be ashamed of in that legacy when we look back on it. I mean, I keep thinking about the weird idea that, you know, Nazi generals and leaders and the swastika would be romanticized and glorified in Germany. That just would never happen. And if it did, we would find it to be completely odious. And yet the arguments are so similar. And so when I'm Hearing from people who feel anguished about the loss of the flag because their ancestors fought in the war and they want to continue to feel good about that memory. I just feel like, but it's so much more complicated than that. And that that impulse um, can't win. Here's the question that I came to. I'm not really that concerned about the psychology of young white males in the South and their how they should feel good about themselves. But I do think about it. All people want to have a heartfelt desire to preserve some connection to their past. We all want that. If you're Jewish, you want to have some continuity with a with a, a Jewish past. I mean, one reason why the Holocaust is so devastating is it destroyed a historical continuity to Europe. Everyone seeks that. How is it that, that white Southerners can build a connection to their past that they feel happy about and feel pride in what are the things that if you were a politician that you ought to sort of redirect people towards so that they don't attach themselves to these symbols, which are symbols of hate and violence and racism and cruelty? You mean, I mean in besides the past, football? In the southern like, I mean, like, yeah, it's like, what, what do you leave people with? You, you leave people with football, basically. Well, if you, the other if things, you're ta- like, I mean, here's, you could go here's back actually, to the sorry, Well, no, no, here's, here's what I start to think about is that, that one reason why te- I don't think Texas is as sort of as troubled by its confederacy is that Texas has a kind of Western frontier actually, tradition that it clings to, that it attaches to. And Louisiana also has a kind of, it has a kind of Cajun bayou thing and music that it can attach to. Well, but a lot of Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, South Carolina, like it's very hard for people and those folks in the, to, to look back to a history like, where do they look back to in their history that allows them to feel 
feel a sense of pride. And what's happened is they've looked back and they've claimed, you know, they've just held on to the Confederacy, which is, but it's a loathsome thing to hold on to. Well, I think there are, I mean, there are some states, Tennessee, they, you know, cling to their mountain past. Round past, right, yeah. Uh, yeah. Cling, sort of in a, John, yeah. And same with North Carolina. Word. What's that? Don't use cling. Cling, don't not use a cling. pejorative good yeah, word. Yeah, we don't use, use cling. I use it as a They hark. Oh, I, I mean. Hold on to. Cling because Obama used it? Yeah. Well, and I think for good reason he was criticized for it. it well, just he wasn't criticized like for cling. He was, he was criticized for clinging to religion and guns. Yeah. But to your point on Texas, actually, David, I was talking to um, to Russell Moore, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, who came out very strongly against the flag before uh, they announced they were taking it down in South Carolina, basically saying that the cross and the flag cannot both exist without one setting the other on fire. And he said that the biggest pushback he's gotten about that statement has not been from the South, but has been from places like Montana and and Texas and places where people have turned the flag into a symbol of get your meddlesome elite opinion government hands out of my freedom, that it's morphed into that. And beyond the heritage piece, beyond that this is a symbol of my heritage, it's that it's the politically correct people are taking this thing down and I rebel against that, that it started to morph into that in states that have no, you know, Montana has no uh, big <laughs> civil war um, history. I mean, but whatever. Those are loud voices, but there can't be that many of them. And also, like, why do we think that they matter a great deal? But wh- well, I don't you- know that I don't know whether they matter or not, but it's just to give shape to the pushback on this and how it includes much more than just people trying to, you know, from the South. or. But, what, but, but I, I want, think I want, David's question is a really profound one that we should deal with for another minute or two, because I think it's a big problem and it explains why there is such strong feeling in favor of well, take, of keeping the Confederate flag in the South, even uh, if I mean, Virginia, that sentiment is going to lose out. Virginia has a pretty healthy feeling about its own state and there, you know, it was the center of the Confederacy, but that's not what all Virginians cling to when they think about the Commonwealth. So Virginia, Virginia, is a state, has, whole, Virginia have... has an incredible non-Confederate history. Right. That's yeah. but, but so your but point is what do states is that, do that... And, and I think that... But I don't think that Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia and, and South Carolina and Arkansas have as much to, have as much to hold to. And they're much sure more wrapped in the, ide- sh- in the identity of the Confederacy. Couldn't you just not be familiar with the people from Mississippi, Georgia... I mean, I look, certainly I've spent South a lot. Of, I've spent do, a lot of time in I, South Carolina. I've spent a lot of. Uh, but here's you know, my I've guess: spent time in Alabama. My guess and is that what held my guess is Arkansas. that what held so, the people, the, what's held the people of South Carolina together, and Charleston in particular, and what's unique, uh, or not maybe not unique, but certainly different from Charleston, from say Ferguson or other or Baltimore, and there are lots of things that make them different. But there was not massive rioting either in North North Charleston or in Charleston after this. I bet what held the communities together in Charleston after this massacre and what has been praised by everybody who's seen it happen is what holds those communities together. I mean, that it's faith, it's family, it's common, it's a common geographical John, upbringing. Of course, lot, there's faith and family. There's lots of it. But right, but your point a, is that the, they don't have anything strong in their lives. No, I'm not and so saying they there's cling nothing strong thing. in their lives. I'm saying that, that it is a human instinct. To, to want to connect yourself to your ancestry and to connect yourself to your heritage. Like that is something we all seek to do. It is a fundamental human aspect of identity is to connect yourself to your but past. Why can't you and, just, why do you need do to you, do it through, why can't you just do what, it through what all the people in Charleston are doing who don't care about the flag? But what, you, you haven't identified it. You, blood. You haven't, you haven't identified it. What do you mean blood? blood? You're by relation. 
people don't go on to Ancestry.com because they're like, oh, sweet, I can learn about my like Civil War past. I, don't think, I think there's something to that. But I think also people want to say things about themselves. And they want to say say things. But other than that, that they were related to somebody, they want to say, I was part of my, you know, my but family also, came here as but, part of a movement. They but were, maybe if your family was owning slaves, you just have to give that up and you don't get to feel good about it. And that's just the way it goes. But my point is that there are millions of other of things. You, there, but there are other things you can feel good about that, like, it's, I mean, it's well, not sure, like but only if you burbaffed. leave out, like, a big, huge thing. I mean, I think that would be really tough. I also think it's super important. What, John, you're squeezing your face in this I'm way. just so looks baffled. Like I'm just like, you're, well, you I'm just, but you have to look past hundreds of years you of history. Saying, you have to, I mean, no, 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 I don't no, know you're, who we're you're, talking you've about here. You've turned the telescope. Look, Emily, look, you've turned the telescope the wrong way. What David's saying is that without, that because they have no other things to center their ancestral heritage around, they reach no, for the flag. Not, and I'm no, saying you I'm can have saying, lots I'm of things that, that have no nothing to do with the I'm war. I'm saying that, first of all, that the, that the way... it's not just the war. The, that the politicians and the people and the politicians and leaders of the South have explicitly focused people's attention on the flag and the sim- white people's attention on the flag and the lost cause uh, narrative and the symbols of Confederacy and so that people have built their identities around it because they've been guided to do that. That's number one. And number two is because there hasn't been a reconciliation the way there was in... Nazi Germany, where Nazi Germany really confronted its past, really confronted it and said, we were wrong. We were we were terrible. It allows modern well, Germans, different it allows modern Germans to kind of move forward in the present without having to be haunted by that, without having to to be addicted to sort of thinking about their their Nazi heritage. Well, and I don't think the point. South, I don't think white Southerners have gotten there. Yet. Well, that's a different point. But you're, what you seem to be saying at the beginning was that because they didn't have other things around which to center their their heritage, they reached for the flag. And my argument is that they have other things that all normal people have from everywhere else in the country that don't necessarily doesn't mean that they're all driven towards the flag because they're bereft in in their understanding well, of their connections to other people. But I family. also think I, I guess I, I guess I'm posing it as a problem, a problem for you are raising a, a son in in Alabama. You're a white man raising a son in Alabama. You and have you to be a multi-generational him. Southerner, right, for this to feel important. You'd have to be able how to trace you, your family you... back to slave owners. So, but why can't you just have your ancestral connections be through hunting and fishing and going to church and eating the same pie on Thanksgiving well, sure and all can, those other things? But if you were part of a family that, you know, owned slaves, fought for the South and Civil War or participated benefited from— well, I'm going to make this argument. Well, that, what yes, if well family... you can make many arguments. You know, it's bad to open your windows in a rainstorm. There are many what? other arguments. Well, no, you can but make, I think but Emily, the I am continuing along. No, I was talking. I was talking. You, what if? Okay, so maybe those things aren't true. But your family benefited a great deal from rejecting Reconstruction or from Jim Crow. So, sure, you can call up other yeah, values well, that's and not, other that's, ways well, in which that's I am yeah. still talking. But, well, but, but to I'm leave doing, out, I'll be happy to. <laughs> But to leave out your participation in that ugly history is a form of make-believe. And so it seems to me like this is an important reason why the flag has remained in place long, long, long after. Right, this, but that's, I mean, this is like the end. The that may be so, but that's over. not the argument David was making. So yes, I will concede, what do I care? No, I, will like cons- I will concede that people who have a long and deep history with Civil War 
the Civil War in their family are a unique case. But that wasn't the argument. I don't think. No, John, I, I'm going to continue to go, go back to my argument. I don't think the Civil the Civil War in no sense ended in 1865. It's not just that well, you have civil, the Civil War in your family. It's that you have 100 years afterwards of Jim Crow and of white violence towards black that is, you know, legally enfranchised. Right. And that and that, that's what I and meant. That, that is a hundred. Right. That is like the basically the entire history of the American South up until about sure, 1965 that's that's, that's is this is is. But it's stained. not fine. You yeah. can't just like no, 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 no. My, it but, doesn't matter. No, 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 no. You got it totally, totally wrong. Okay. David's original argument was that because these people lack their own kind of other kind of history, they're driven into having to care about the flag. That's the thing with which I disagree. If you say other things that are true but that have nothing to do with that underlying argument, you can keep saying them. I'm not disagreeing with them. I'm trying to talk about the original thing that we were discussing. So yes, they have a very complicated history. Yes, it extends long beyond the Civil War. Yes, there are a lot of people who care about the flag who had nothing to do and their family had nothing to do with the Civil War and who've developed their identity around this flag for a bunch of complicated reasons that have nothing to do with their ancestry. What I was taking issue with is the idea that because they have no other ancestral ties that they kind of grasp at the flag. I think they have plenty of ancestral ties. There are plenty of people who have all kinds of deep, rich ancestral relationships that just don't ever run into the flag or the war itself at all. So that's not to negate the group of people that do have that, but to say that they, because they have some special deficiency in the South, because they don't have connections, they're driven to the flag. I don't think it's right. I think it's I'm got to tell us. It's not saying it's a deficiency, John. I'm saying that there is an that explicitly, like for for the past 400 years. Who are these white Southerners who are completely unaffected by all this history? I just don't believe that they exist. The, so unaffected the, is different. Unaffected, Emily, is an argument that there is different than the argument he was making. His argument is not that they are... His argument is that the, this is the thing that drives their familial connections. And my argument is that there are plenty of things that can drive familial John, connections. John, I am not saying that, pe- uh, that p- people in the South don't have other aspects to their lives. I'm saying that there, it is a huge overarching part of the Southern narrative in the past 200 years. And it is it is the major story, the major historical story of white Southern life is about the relations of race, of the war. And sure. therefore, that's a gigantic part of, of how people have shaped their identity. Yes. And so when when you tell people, you take this that is no, away. you can't have that. What is it? How do they form? Well, that's how a, do they form a, that's a healthy a, historical well, that's identity? Fine. That's an interesting and question. That's an interesting question. But that wasn't the original way you put it. You, well, I would still like to discuss that, and I think that it's a really big problem because to feel like your historical I- identity, your family's participation in the world over a long period of time was unjust and perhaps immoral and deeply damaging to other people, that is a lot to grapple with. And that, to me, really helps explain why the country has participated in romanticizing the South and the lost cause and why we haven't ever truly grappled with reconciliation and truth. Can I also just say that if you look at the growth of cities like Columbia, South Carolina or Charleston, well, not Charleston, maybe so much, but um, Charlotte, North Carolina, there are huge groups in population of people there who didn't, A, didn't come from the South, and B, aren't connected to the Civil War. So I think sure. you want to be careful about suggesting that there, there are vast people in the South who come from deep slave-owning, plantation-owning parts of the South, of the modern South. Oh, absolutely. And those people are able to distance themselves from the history in a completely different way. Well, but you also look at the polling numbers and you see that the percentage of, of – I mean, at least these are probably pre-Emmanuel – 
massacre numbers, but the percentage of white Southerners who want to keep the Confederate flag, you know, 60, 70, 70 percent. Right. But I think those polls are hollow and empty. It was because there didn't seem to be any urgency in the matter. And now there does. And I think when people really understand how disturbing it is for a lot of black people and lots of people in general in the world to be retaining those images, they're going to change their minds. And that's what we're seeing. And it's actually very moving how quickly the shift is happening. Last question on this, John. So Ben Carson spoke out about the shooting and said this is, you know, this is racism. This is a poisonous racism is what has driven this young man. What impact have Hart Carson's statements had on the Republican field? Anything? I, I don't think any. He was, he gets kind of um, clarity points for being one of the first to come out and call it what it was and speak to the issue clearly. But because of the huge run to the front of the parade response to this in other quarters, that was overtaken by events, um, which is to say that all the other candidates kind of got to that position quickly. There were some originally <laughs> on there was this hysterical period of 12 hours or so where people were talking about this is an attack on religious liberty. And all the people who said that ultimately gave up on that and, and started calling it what, what it was. So, But in that brief short period, he was the most clear in his initial statements. GAFest is sponsored this week by Casper. The mattress industry, woof. It has forced customers into paying notoriously high markups. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly on to the consumer. So with Casper, you can get an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It has the right sink and the right bounce. I think those are mattress technical terms, sink and bounce, with two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, which come together for better nights, better sleeping, brighter days. Casper also has a risk-free trial and return policy. You can try sleeping on a Casper mattress for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. The mattresses are made in America, and they are caused much less than mattresses you buy in some mattress store. $500 for a twin-sized mattress and $950 for a king-sized mattress. Comparing to industry averages, that is an outstanding price and of course, we have a special offer for GabFest listeners. You can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash political. There are terms and conditions that apply. Casper.com slash political. Pope Francis, every atheist's favorite pope, every Jew's favorite pope, <laughs> every scientist's favorite pope, winner of my personal Pope of the Year contest, has released an, a 180 or so page encyclical. John is going to explain what an encyclical is shortly, a kind of guiding document about the environmental degradation of the earth by man. He made several key points in this encyclical, climate change, which is caused by man is ruining the planet and making filth of God's creation. It has largely been caused by rich countries, and yet the poor are paying the price for it, and we have to solve it, and here perhaps the most controversial part of it, he, his solutions don't involve any sort of market forces because he believes that ultimately the source of all this degradation is the forces of greed and capitalism, which have led to this. So he, it's a very passionate, very quotable encyclical. And he is not making any scientific claims in this document that have not been made by climate scientists many, many times. He also has no power to make any kind of public policy. The Pope does not control emissions anywhere. 
And yet, people are very, very excited about it. So, Emily, why why do you think his exhortation has got the people who are most worried about the earth so so thrilled? Because of his moral authority and the devotion which with, with which many people are following him and his centrality to the Catholic Church, and also because sometimes the Catholic Church is a force for conservative values, at least, well, yeah, generally. And so this is an example on the other side. And I think it also helps the cause of putting a stake through the heart of denying that climate change is happening because he's such an important international figure. John, what do you think? I think that's I think that's right. There's also in in a country like Brazil, it carry he his voice carries a little more weight and Brazil has some real work to do in terms of participating in the global I guess the Paris meeting in December, it, Brazil kind of needs to get its global warming act together and so the pope speaking and the moral power of of his message in Brazil where there are a lot of Catholics would maybe be stronger than in say China. Though I may be totally wrong, there may be a huge number. There's likely to be a huge number of anything in China. But anyway, so I think it has. There's also, I guess, my point is a geographical power that he has in certain places. What's interesting though is he seems to have very little power among Catholics in the United States who didn't agree with him in the first place. Um, Cafeteria Catholics are a well-known group that kind of pick and choose between what to pay attention to in Catholic doctrine and what not to. And I think for a lot of people who believe it will be economically too costly to handle the um, human activity that contributes to climate change, they're willing to kind of move past this encyclical. Do you think that this does anything to push conservatives and the Republican presidential candidates towards at least saying, oh, yeah, yeah, climate change is for real? I don't think so. Good not Lord. at all. Not at all. I Did just, I really think like not at all. I think here's why, because their safe harbor is this. So you have a couple of different areas on the scale. There are those people who believe humans have no role in climate change at all. The historical data shows that there have been warming periods, you know, that got rid of the ice age and there were no machines back then. So then there are other people who say, sure, we may be humans are contributing, but I don't know. Science is fuzzy. I'm no scientist. Then there's groups say, sure, they may be contributing, but the economic sanctions and regulations that you'd have to put on business would be so onerous that you would cause more harm, not cause more harm than good, but all the things that have been suggested would you know, cripple business. Those people can agree with the Pope on the broad outlines, right? Not the stuff about capitalism and basic, because the Pope, I think, at least based on the way that David Brooks interpreted it. So David Brooks believes in climate change, believes that man-made activity has contributed to it and that people should try to solve that problem, but disagreed with the Pope's attack on capitalism, arguing that basically there have been instances, and he may be, I don't know whether he's right or wrong on this, but that that there are instances in which, say, for example, the success of fracking has lowered the reliance on coal, and since coal contributes to, to climate change, that's been a beneficial outcome of commercial activity, at least on the climate change front. People obviously will argue about fracking and what it does to the water table. By going so far in the anti-capitalist argument, the Pope also gives uh, those who would are looking for a way to get out of agreeing with him or looking for a way to get out from under his encyclical a place to say, look, this is really an attack on capitalism and I'm not for that. Yeah, that was a super bummer. I was really <laughs> surprised. What was a super bummer? The Brooks's piece well, or the Pope? Re- well, that the Pope rejected market solutions to 
dealing with climate change when cap and trade is such a promising way to go about it. I mean, I know he was making a deep critique of capitalism, and that I suppose is commendable, but it was so impractical. And I think, as John said, it gives people a way to avoid moving forward in the but, direction you know, of but actually the Pope solving is not the problem. Just like, the Pope is not just some like neoliberal economist. He's the Pope. Well, I know, but he <laughs> could take consequences into account just like Supreme Court justices can. He can think pragmatically. There's not like against the rules He's of He's providing Pope. sort of moral force about what we're doing to the earth. That seems to me yeah, isn't I think that his job. I yeah, no, but I think, well, sorry, go ahead, Emily. Well, I mean, look, I'm, I'm not a Catholic, so I don't feel right um, criticizing the Pope. And I... I see the moral force behind this pronouncement. I also think, though, that if you're worried about a problem and one of the routes to saving the problem is through market forces, and that's really important, and maybe even something people could agree about, it's not such a great idea to just cross it off the list. Yeah, no, Sorry, he's Pope. wrong. He's definitely wrong. But I don't... Well, that's well, the I think it's, like it's, it's asking a little... It's It's slightly unreasonable for you to ask him to be that person. Well, I think you can ask him to be a moral force and make the argument that he makes about the poor and the fact that, that climate change disproportionately affects the poor and will um, they will suffer and that that's always been a part of the Catholic mission to take care of the poor and also be stewards of God's earth. But then when he steers into the lane of like picking and choosing which whether, client, whether off, carbon offsets are a good or a bad policy, he's gone from making like the moral claim to making a like specific tactical claim. And that seems out of his lane. That seems. And he could have stayed out of it, right? It wasn't like he had to start talking about cap and trade. I, one thing I've never understood, this is not really about the Pope, it's more about conservatives and climate changes. Why there isn't a large pro-technology wing of the conservative movement that really is like, we gotta, we can be the ones who are going to solve this. We're, it's it's a sort but of techno But there is. They are looking for like... They are. But They're it's the not ones a large who are wing. It's want... a small wing. Well, maybe it'll. It's growing though. I mean, this whole idea that what we need to invest in are you know geoengineering and like you know wrapping all the excess carbon up in some package and delivering it to outer space. Like that is who those people are, and it is a concern to people who are worried about climate change and trying to limit carbon production because it seems like a big distraction. It's not a big distraction. It's, it's because we're not going to limit carbon production. That is unrealistic. And therefore, it kind of techno-utopian, conservative techno-utopianism to me is is probably the only way we're going to get out of it because it's very hard to restrain the market forces. It's a collective action problem. Like there's too, there's too much incentive for any one individual to pollute, right? And so you assume the pollution is going to happen. And therefore, how do you ameliorate it? You've got to find some other way to ameliorate it, which is probably technological. And so I would love for there to be love for there to be some sort of you know libertarian anti-climate change person who wants to make billions of dollars by being the person who sequesters who manages to sequester carbon underneath their estate in Montana. Right, I know. I mean, look, I see what you mean. Better to have us ship our carbon to Mars than for us all to end up on Mars because we've wrecked planet Earth and can't fix it again. It's just that we don't have that technical solution at our fingertips right now. I know, but why aren't – this is but what I'm we'll asking is like why aren't there conservatives who want to do that? And I feel I like that's a great are. opportunity for some – but it's it's weird that the the whole – so much of the Republican Party has wrapped itself in this totally anti-scientific denialist lunacy – when there isn't, when there's a perfectly reasonable alternative position, which doesn't require you to be 
and know nothing. Well, if to- I mean, I think the problem is that right now it's an imaginary hypothetical position. I mean, I agree with you. I see the promise in what you're saying, but it doesn't have any... It's not like someone can say, oh, this form of sequestration is looking really promising. And that is a problem if you're a politician. I think, David, if you said we just we agree with you that mankind is causing it, we just have a better way, right? That's what you're saying, is to is to affirm the underlying role of man in right. climate change. Well, yeah, which, but we, it's true. Yeah, like, yeah. It's like, it did not affirm it's it fighting on, to, It's fi- fighting on their... Well, it's two things. One, that would get you in trouble with your constituents who think that mankind doesn't... Parti- so you want to just right. like... Not your and you're fighting on somebody morons. else's turf. It's like Democrats fighting on taxes. Whenever voters hear a debate about taxes, they just, as- they just assume that the Republicans are right. I mean, the polling has shown this. Same is true with issues of, well, you know, like healthcare and education, Democrats for a long time. Whatever the debate is, if people don't hear... The the facts of it, they just assume the Democrat is right. And so the more time you spend debating the issue on climate change grounds, Mm -hmm. the more you're going to get the Democrats are going to benefit. The more you debate the issue on energy grounds, like we got to, you know, grab all of America's great energy resources, the better that is for Republicans. So it's an agenda question. Hmm. I mean, surely, David, what you just outlined is the next move that will be made once it becomes completely and utterly possible to deny that climate change is real. Last question about the Pope, John. So how do conservatives feel about the, this Pope this day, who, since he combines such obviously admirable human qualities with policy positions that are slightly problematic for some uh, conservatives? Well, it's f- f- fascinating t- also because, I mean, I think generally what they feel is good Pope, little too liberal. But that's okay because he's not really doing anything that, you know, as long as he sticks to like, the things they would agree with, which is we want to help the people who are less fortunate among us and stick to the kind of good good stuff that you go to church for, that's fine. But when he starts picking cap and trade or no cap and trade, he's out of his depth. And and I think there are plenty of Catholics who are voting conservative Catholics who would feel that way about him too. So it's not as if you have a situation where you're going to pay a penalty with the voters you want who are Catholics because you're ignoring him. Whereas there's certainly a group of evangelical leaders who have been pro-environment and have kind of challenged their fellow evangelicals on climate change. And that hasn't caused any problem really either. I mean, it's not as big as having the Pope do it. Before we get to cocktail chatter, we have another sponsor this week. Blue Apron is the new service that delivers all the ingredients you need to make incredible meals at home. Farm fresh ingredients are perfectly portioned and come with an easy-to-follow recipe card so you can create a delicious meal in 35 minutes or less. You can cook meals like Thai chicken meatballs with red coconut curry and bok choy, yum, or macadamia-crusted cod with black rice and golden beet salad. Discover a better way to cook. Visit blueapron.com slash gabfest to get your first two meals free. That's blueapron.com slash gabfest. Now let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're having a macadamia-crusted cod cocktail. John Dickerson, what are you going to be chattering about? I'm going to be chattering about this great piece in New York Magazine uh, by David Wallace-Wells on um, bumblebees. Um, I loved that piece. Yeah, which everybody know. well, everybody should know that bumblebees are, you know, endangered. And, and the argument of the piece is basically the headline of the piece is it turns out bees are quite literally worrying themselves to death. It's a great piece about the fact, you know, it's got full of great facts. Last year, beekeepers lost 42% of their colonies. In the last five years, die-offs have hit 34%, 46%, 29%, 36%. I mean, so it's full of, like, crunchy numbers. 
and it's great, just a great story, and with other other fun facts, like one in every three mouthfuls of food you have is related to a pollination by a bee. But one of my favorite other parts of the piece. So anyway, this is just basically go read the piece in New York Magazine. Um, it's wonderful. One of the things I liked about it was this um, beekeeper David Hackenberg, who people have probably heard about and read about if they've ever read anything about bees, was one of the kind of people who discovered basically the canary, you know, the dead lumps of canaries in the coal mine, and he describes what it was like when he first made one of these discoveries. And he t- so in two thousand and six. He is inspecting 2,400 hives in Florida, and he says, uh, it's kind of an airy, breezy day, 70-some degrees, but there's no bees flying. There's something wrong here. Nobody's sticking their heads out of door, and I just started jerking covers, and then I was really jerking covers. I mean, I'm going right down to the line, pulling covers up, and there's nobody home. I'm so stunned, I can't even talk. I'm on my hands and knees, crawling around, looking for dead bees in and among the stones, and there wasn't any. I mean, there was no dead bees. Three weeks ago, these bees are fine. Now, no dead bees. You've got a murder scene, and nobody knows what happened. There are no weapons. There are no corpses. Anyway, first of all, great, like storytelling of that event but also it just feels like the beginning of some movie we've all seen right that that's the beginning the guy's on his hands and knees and then you know the the apocalyptic rest of the movie with Jodie Foster killing everyone with a sharpened snow shovel is is to come um anyway it's just a great piece wow that's grim in B, other B culture, if you read that, I chattered about that novel, The Bees. Yes, that's mentioned in this, in this piece oh, as such well. Such a great book. Uh, Laylene Paul's book. Whoa, go read that novel. Emily Bazelon, what is your chatter? I had the most amazing week in the Grand Canyon while you guys were oh. dealing with the Gab Fest. And I just, I mean, if you like the outdoors and you are up for spending a week at the bottom of that canyon on the Colorado River, I just... It was really like an amazing trip, such a great thing to do with kids. They just like come alive. Um, the outfitters we went with who are called Canyon Explorations, they just run an amazing show with guides who were incredibly deeply knowledgeable about the canyon and amazingly fun. Blew up large inflatable pool toys like alligators and pigs. Um, my son Simon went down some sizable rapids on the back of a pink pig. Anyway, if you are up for a really outdoorsy vacation and you've never gone to the canyon and that sounds at all fun f- to you, I really, really can't recommend it highly yeah, enough. I'm totally weird. So there. The Rosenblatt. Yeah, really- you have to go. You really do. Got to do that. All right. God, that's great. How many days were you on the on the water? We were on the water for six days, um, and then we had to hike out because we only did the upper half of the canyon, which was a big, arduous, adventurous hike, and that was actually a great ending to the trip. Wow. That sounds awesome. Okay. My chatter, it's it's kind of boring and mundane. It's just, I, it is what I've been thinking about this week. So I spent much of the spring consuming really dark, grim television. So Game of Thrones and Veep and po- just really poisonous shows. Mad Men is pretty poisonous. And True Detective has started out the new season. It's pretty poisonous. And I, so I, for I, reasons I can't quite explain, I've gone back and I'm rewatching Friday Night Lights. Holy cow. That show is just, it'll just make you feel good. Like <laughs> it is so great. It is as good as it was. So if you haven't seen Friday Night Lights, you've got to go see it. It is, it's just lovely. It's a lovely, lovely show. Lovely. It couldn't be better. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, it's just, oh. I skipped, I started in season three because I remembered hating season two. So 
So, but I'm well. It's season two, the the messed up yeah, aborted yeah, yeah. season. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, everybody has to skip that. Yeah. <laughs> our intern is Tark Barrett. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and the Gabfest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com/slash/panoply. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. And our Twitter feed is at slate gabfest. Please subscribe to the Gabfest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. Search uh, blah, blah, blah. All right. (laughs) (laughs) You can leave in that blah, blah, blah. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Uh, Remember, if you're a Slate Plus member, you have about just a few hours to sign up for this cocktail party before our DC live show. We will talk to you next week. Hi, I'm James Ledbetter, host of Inc. Uncensored, our podcast about business, startups, entrepreneurship, and technology. Listen to us this week as we discuss with John Fine, Bobby Jindal's creepy announcement video and his certainly doomed presidential campaign. With senior editor Chris Friswick. How Damon John picks his winning companies. And senior writer Christine Legorio Chafkin. On the city phone booth getting a makeover. Please join us at Inc. Uncensored, the best podcast on the Panoply Network of other very good podcasts. You can download them all at iTunes.com slash Panoply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.